The music was ear-splittingly loud. I'm not that old of a guy, but, you know, I'd like to think that I could still maybe attend a rock concert without earplugs. This was not the case. The music was so loud, it would rattle your chest. You could feel it inside your body, inside the seat you were sitting in. And it was a youth conference. I had done many of these before. Year after year, over the summer, I take a, a van full of kids, and I throw them all in it, and I take away their cell phones, and I say, guys, we're going to get away, and we go to one of these conferences. And at these conferences, there's a lot of amazing things that happen. Moments away from social media and from the, 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 the trouble of life, they do something. They allow you to address issues you've never been able to address. But it was this one particular one that stuck out more than any other speaker that I had ever had up to that point or thereafter. And the music was dying down. I pulled out my earplugs. I definitely bought some for this. I put them in my pocket. And the keynote speaker began to speak. And he presented a message and a story that I will never forget. He was a pastor, like myself, and he had kids, like myself, except his were much older. His were teenagers, and he had a bunch of boys. And his story began with, you know, I don't do this all the time, but I, I had a feeling my son was up to something. And so I searched his room. And he told us that he had searched his son's room, and he found something in his son's room. He found marijuana. <gasps> he found weed, or one of my favorite colloquial terms for it, the devil's lettuce. Let that one sit in for a second. He found marijuana in his son's bedroom, and he told us about it. He's like, he said, I understood my son was going through some stuff and that he was getting into things he probably shouldn't have. And um, at this point, I didn't know where this story was going. I mean, Kids everywhere get into stuff they probably shouldn't get into. But he began to share one of the most. <sighs> it just rocked me because he told me how he dealt with it. He said he approached his son and he told his son, he's like, son, we don't allow this stuff in our house. We don't allow this stuff in our family. And we don't allow this stuff in our church. And he looked his son square in the eye and he said, what you're going to do this next Sunday is you're going to stand up here in the pulpit right next to me on Sunday morning service, and you're going to tell the congregation sorry for what you did, for what you let into your life and the example that you're being for the other kids in this church. I'm going to go ahead and give you my opinion on this right away. But that's not exactly the way to handle that situation. I was sitting at the far end of a row of all of my students, and I'm sitting in my chair listening to this, and I can't help but think like, oh no, we're talking about this later. <laughs> I looked down at all my students, and I could see all their faces one by one, one after another. They're like, what? And they look over at me, and I'm like, I, we'll talk about it later. Just, just sit still. And so I knew it was coming. 
Because there's youth group time that comes after the keynote speaker. And that's the time where we pick through the message. We pick through what happened that day. We talk about all the stuff we've been encountering. And I knew that we were going to have one conversation that night. And it was, is that the way that we deal with sin, with brokenness, with bad stuff that enters our lives? Do we take the people who have had wrongs and we say, let's look in the audience. Carl, come on up. We're going to talk about your sins at the pulpit today. No, we don't do that. Carl, you can stay there. We don't do that. But I was looking at all these students and I knew that they were scared in their eyes. And so we sat down and I looked at all of them. And I said, got anything you want to confess? (laughs) I'm just kidding. But I looked at them and I was like, guys, we got to talk about this. And uh, and, uh, we had one very, very outspoken student and she said, that was wrong. That's not how you deal with people. And, um, and I was like, that's very abst- uh, uh, astute observation, and you're right. That is not how we deal with people. Because if we think about, we think about that young man, that young man who uh, was using marijuana, and his dad found out, and then got paraded in front of the congregation, and his issue that he was dealing with began, it became a whole thing. It, it became everybody's issue. It, he became the kid that got paraded on the, on the front of the, uh, the, the, uh, at the pulpit for doing what he did. And I asked all the students, I said, hey, does that make you want to tell me what's wrong with you? <laughs> does, that want to, does that make you want to share the things that are going on in your life? Does that, does that give you a desire? Does that make you feel safe to share your brokenness? And with the resounding no, We talked about the devastating effects of that, about how we feel if if our wrongs are going to be paraded and criticized by everyone that we look at and everyone we know, that's all the more incentive to just keep them deep, deep down. And I'm going to go ahead and say that the pulpit isn't a place for confession. It isn't the place for working out our congregant sins. It isn't the place for bashing people over the head with a Bible. And there was a phrase that came to mind through all of this. Confession is good for the soul. It's something we hear a lot. It's one of those sayings that just resonates and and sticks around. And so the question is, if confession is good for the soul, why is it so terrifying? Why is it so hard to let people in on the hard things that we're going through in life. And so I'm going to give you a a, a little bit of an idea of where we're going with this. We're going to look at what it looks like to deal with admitting our wrongs and confessing our brokenness in a healthy manner. Not in the manner where we have a shame parade on stage for all the broken things that we've done, but in a manner that You'll see. You see, in our church service, in, the, in our sermon series that we're going through, we're actually going through a, it's called As You Are. And it's the idea, we're, at, we're asking the question, what would it look like if we did church like a 12-step program? What if we did church the way 
that AA had meetings? What if when we dealt with our brokenness, we realized we were all on the same page? You see, there's this powerful thing about AA. And it's that you can come in just off of a bender. You could come in as, as, as fresh as they come out of the bar. And you can step into a meeting and they say, welcome, brother. And then after 24 hours, you get your first chip. After a week, you get another chip. After a month, you get another chip. And you could be part of this family in this group for years and years and years and decades and decades pass. And it's been 30 years sober. And you fall off the wagon. Life hits you hard as it usually does. And you come back into that meeting. Fresh off a new bender. And they say one thing. That's welcome back, brother. Welcome back, sister. And so we ask the question, what does it look like to bring that to church? What does it look like? To say, welcome back, brother. Welcome home, friend, to everybody that walks through that door, to everyone in this community. And so we've been going through steps. We've been going through the, uh, the 12 steps of the 12-step program, and we've been looking at what would those look like if they had to do with faith in God, if they had to do with sin and not just addiction. And so we went through step one, and step one is, is about our own powerlessness and understanding that we are powerless to, to change ourselves because if we could fix everything that was wrong in our lives, we would have done it already. And so step one is a hard one. It's admitting that we don't have control, that we can't just, with the sheer might of will, overcome the things that we want to overcome. And then we moved on to step two. Step two is the recognition that God is powerful enough to restore us. It's a recognition of that step one is, I don't have the power to do it. Step two is realizing, but God does. And then step three, step three, is, is the first part where we actually start getting invested. Step three is we make a decision. A decision to recognize our brokenness, to recognize that God can do something about it, and make a decision to turn our will and life over to God so that he can restore us like no one else can. And with step four, the one we had last week, now that we've made a decision to get involved, a decision to start working on our brokenness, step four is where we really start breaking ground. And it's about making a fearless and searching moral inventory of ourselves. Last week, we talked about the, what it would be like to sift through all the things in our closet, all the skeletons, and do a catalog, make an inventory of our brokenness. And there's, a, there's an interesting buildup here because if we've gone through step four and we understand our brokenness, What's the next logical step? And it's where we are this morning. Step five. We admit, we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to other human beings, the exact nature of our wrongs. We admitted to God, to ourselves, and to other human beings, the exact nature of our wrongs. 
Now, I have a question with this one. If you can get yourself in, into the mindset of one of my students listening up at that pastor talking about when he found sin in his son's life, he dragged him onto the pulpit and he shared it with the congregation with the first thought being, hey, that sounds like fun. I should admit the things that are going on in my life. I would say no. And so coming off of that, why in the world would we confess our wrongdoings? Why would we do that? Because we always have the, the counter option, and that's, what's wrong with just working through them by myself? Why can't I just do it? And there's reasons why step five is step five, and step one, two, and three, and four come beforehand. Because there's a question, the counter offer to should I confess my sins? And it's, well, why can't I just deal with it by myself? And this is where we get a little bit of self-diagnosis going on here. Because if we think we can fix things by ourselves, we're at step one. If we think we can do things by ourselves, we're at step one. And that's not a shaming thing. We're all at different steps on our own. But if we think we can do things by ourselves, we have yet to come to even admit that we're powerless over our brokenness. Maybe, if, maybe, we have, maybe we have been able to admit that we're powerless. And so maybe we're stuck on step two and step three. We understand we're powerless, but we can't quite yet admit that God is the one who could help us. And that's okay to be at step two and to be at step three. Maybe you've gone through step one and step two and step three, and you're ready for God to work on you but you're standing at the closet, of your, the closet of your soul and you understand behind that closet there are so many skeletons that you're afraid to face, means you're probably at step four. But, and this is a big but, if we've gone through step one and step two and step three and step four and we're here at step five, it's important for us to understand that there's some, there's some powerful things about step five some life-altering things, some mindset changes that help us heal in a way that we would never heal on our own. And there's an important thing. We got to admit that confession is a real loaded word. I don't know about you guys, but I've been in trouble as a kid. And there's, there's this weird, overwhelming sense of like, oh, crud whenever you realize mom and dad have learned something about your misdeeds maybe it was the broken pot that you threw in the garbage maybe it was something you've gotten into but there's a fear as a kid of like oh no mom and dad are gonna find out and throughout our lives we have this trouble with letting people see our wrongs see our brokenness and so there's a power in confession or admitting our wrongs. In AA, the fundamental thing is that you're not facing them alone. If other people are in on your wrongdoings, if other people understand what you're struggling with, you're not going to do it alone. And so there's a, there's, there's a definite purpose for overcoming some of those fears that get in the way. But if we move on from addiction and we look at what the Bible says, in Proverbs 28, 13, it tells us, whoever conceals their sin does not prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. 
For if we conceal our sins, we do not prosper. But if we confess and renounce, we find mercy. And that comes from a very, very important, a very important understanding about how sin works is that it thrives in darkness. Brokenness thrives in darkness. Addiction rages rampantly when we're alone. But there's an important thing about all of this and its understanding is darkness isn't a place that we have to be in. We not, may not be able to fix ourselves. We not, may not be able to tackle everything that comes our way. But darkness is a place that we can choose to step out of. In James 5.16, we get a glimpse in the New Testament about what this should look like in churches. It says, therefore, confess your sin to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Confess your sins and pray for each other so you may be healed. It doesn't say confess your sins so you can be paraded on the pulpit in front of everybody for all the wrongdoings. It doesn't say confess your sins and prepare to be whipped. It doesn't say confess your sins and prepare for people to reject you. It says prepare. It says confess your sins and prepare to be healed. Because that's the goal here. That's the purpose of AA. That's the purpose of, of, of looking at these steps is that the goal is restoration. The goal is healing for all of us. The understanding is that we're all broken, but if we all are just broken by ourselves, there's not a lot of healing that can happen there. There's an example I want to use. Has anybody ever seen a kid vomit on themselves? I'm sorry if you're a, you're a little squeamish, but have you ever had a, seen a kid vomit on themselves? Maybe they're sitting in the couch, they have an upset tummy, and then there, go, there goes all their cookies all over themselves, all over the couch. And there's this moment of where you walk in and you see a child who has vomited on themselves. And there is not a more poor and helpless creature on this earth than a child that's sitting there covered in their own muck, like, I don't know what to do. And there's whimpering and there's crying. And when you walk in on that and you see this kid who's sitting in their own muck, my first thought isn't, well, I'm going to have to give her a stern talking to. We don't throw up in this house. I'm not going to make her feel ashamed for what her tummy's doing. Her tummy hurts. His tummy hurts. And we throw up. We all do it. I'm not going to get angry that she just sat there and didn't clean it up. She's a kid. It's not a fun thing to be, in, be stuck in. But I'm going to look there and I'm going to say, babe, I'm so sorry. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to pick her up. I'm going to touch her vomit. I'm going to hold her close. I'm going to take her to the bathtub and we're going to clean her. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to scoop the cookies off the couch and I'm going to clean that. And the whole way I'm going to hold her close and say, babe, I know this sucks. I know it. I know it stinks. I know we both had to touch it, <laughs> but it's okay. 
We're going to make it better together. See, there's a power in the right atmosphere when it comes to confessing our sins and admitting that we're wrong. Because admitting that we're wrong shouldn't feel like we spilled milk and we got to clean it up real quick before mom gets home. It shouldn't feel like if I admit, if I come out of the darkness, the things that I'm dealing with in church, I shouldn't feel like I'm going to lose my church family. Sharing our wrongs shouldn't feel like putting bullets in the firing line's guns. Sharing our wrongs should feel like a cool shower after a long day in the Arizona sun, marinating in our own sweat. It should feel like, should feel like hiking with a friend and being able to share that painful, burdensome backpack and realizing that they're still going to walk alongside you as you blaze the trail. It should feel like coming home to a family that says, welcome. Let's get you cleaned up. Let's get you fed. Because there's a power in bearing our burdens together. And there's a scripture I want to share. It's from Galatians 6, verse 1 and verse 2. Brother and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burden, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Beautiful words. Gently. Each other's burdens. There's something that needs to be said about the importance of tenderness and mercy and grace in church. There's a beauty in being transparent and honest with the people in the pews around us to know that we're not alone and to know that when people see our brokenness, it's not something they, they recoil and don't want to deal with, but it's like a parent realizing when they're cleaning up their, 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 their soiled child that I'm going to touch your vomit and it's going to be gross, but I love you. We're both going to get a little mucked up. It's going to be gross. It's going to be dirty, but I'm with you through it. And there's a little bit more I want to add to this because it's not just about the whole confessing part. It's also part of being able to listen and hear and love those who confess to us. Those who have placed the trust in us to be willing to share the darkest and hardest things in their life. And I have an important message, an important just fundamental truth about confessing our sins and admitting our wrongs. Be patient with each other. First of all, as somebody who's confessing, Understand that not everybody is able to handle our brokenness. 
who we confess with to is important. The people we admit our wrongs to should people who should be people who are in the thick of it with you, who should understand this system, who should understand what it means to bear each other's burdens. There's a reason why we don't admit the terrible things that we've done to maybe our younger siblings. Maybe somebody who doesn't understand the importance of grace and mercy. There's a reason why sponsors exist in AA. And Roger talked about this a little bit before. A sponsor isn't somebody who's got it all together. They're just somebody who's a little bit further down the road. They're somebody who has realized, hey, I had to admit my brokenness to somebody. And they had to, they had to help me with it. And I need to pass that on. And so when we find somebody that we can place our trust in, we got to understand that that person is a, just a person too. And for those of us that realize that we need to bear each other's burdens, we got to understand the importance of mercy. To understand that other people will be in the places we've been before. And it's dark there. And they can't see there. They don't get to see the hope that you see if you're a little further ahead. But it's your job to be accessible. And that goes for all of us. There's an important part of ministry. And that's always seeking that there's somebody down the road from you who's gone a little bit further. And there's somebody who's behind you. And it's your, it's your job to hold on to the person in front of you so they can support you. And you got to hold on to the person behind you so you can support them. And that's what this is about. That's so desperately what this is about. And so my goal is I want to paint a picture. A picture not of a scared young man standing in front of a pew ready to confess his sins to the congregation. But as a family that's willing to pick up each other when we're covered in our muck and say it. I love you, and it's okay, and we're going to get through this together. There's a difference when we understand that we're not going to lose our family when we share our brokenness. There's a comfort. There's a warmth. There's a tenderness in knowing that I'm loved. Even when I'm covered in my own filth. Our hope is to have a house of gentleness and mercy where the prodigal sons can come back, where the broken kids and the broken brothers and the broken sisters and the broken mothers and the broken fathers who have gone and experienced all the brokenness they can, who have, like the prodigal son, took the wealth of their, their, their father and went out into the world saying, I want to do this myself. I can do this myself. And we face challenge after challenge, and come up against wall after wall. And we realize at some point, I can't do this by myself. I'm withering away. And we can walk back home. And instead of coming home and getting ridiculed for our mistakes, instead of coming home and getting reprimanded for the things that we lost along the way, we come home and realize in my rags and in my brokenness and my filth, 
I have a family member who comes running to me and holds me and picks me up and says, let's have a feast. The lost one has come home. And this is home. What we're trying to build. It's the purpose of this sermon series. I want each and every one of us to know that you can come as you are.